please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's go before the Lord now and pray. Lord Jesus, I feel a kind of trembling in my soul because I know the message that I'm about to preach. And you've been preaching it to me for days now. And I know that you are the Lord of life and the Lord of glory and the Lord of eternal joy, but in order for us to grasp those things, you must confront us, and our flesh takes offense at this, Lord. Our flesh trembles at this. Even though our spirit rejoices at your invitation, our flesh trembles. And so I feel both things right now. I feel a rising joy in the call to follow you, and my flesh feels a sense of trembling. And so I pray today, Lord, that we would... Uh, enter truly into your presence. I pray that we would have ears to hear what you have to say. I pray that anything that I would say today that's not the way you would say it, I pray that that would just fall away from our memories. But to the degree that I'm faithful to what you're saying in the word, I pray that it would confront our souls that we might live. Lord, there are so many things within us and without us that are bidding us to walk away from the Lord of life or to treat you like a side dish rather than the main course. And I pray that today you would capture our attention. And I want to give you my thanks and my praise for what you will do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Last week, Pastor Kevin preached a very good message. I really benefited from listening to that. And at the heart of his message was this truth, that in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must be totally devoted to Christ. It's an all or nothing proposition. In order to have eternal life, we must cling with both arms to him who is life. There's really not a third option. As Kevin said, Jesus is not merely a savior who rescues us from bad things or a friend who walks with us through all things. He is that, but he's more. 
Jesus Christ is God Almighty, and so he demands from us total allegiance. And what else would we expect from him? As Jesus himself said, we cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. We can't serve God and money. We can't serve God and fill in the blank. If you try to have two masters, your life will be divided. You'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. You will love the one, you will hate the other. You actually cannot serve two masters because you were wired by God, hardwired by God to serve only one master. It would be like a computer trying to work off of two operating systems at the same time. You're not designed that way. You and I are designed to worship one master, and Jesus said, therefore, you must give me your total devotion. In order to be a follower of Christ, you must fully surrender to Christ. There is no third option. There is no middle way. I fear, beloved, that we just get too comfortable with Jesus. We domesticate him, and yet he is not ours to be domesticating. In the early 1940s, my stepfather voluntarily joined the Marines. You know that in those days, Hitler and Mussolini and the Emperor of Japan were seeking to take over the world, and my father and his generation were not going to stand idly by and watch that happen. And so my dad deliberately walked down to the recruiter near to his home, and he soon enough donned the uniform of a Marine, and he took those revered words upon his lips, Semper Fi, which means always faithful. The situation that his generation was facing was extreme, and the call to rise up and fight was absolute. It was all in or all out. There was no middle ground whatsoever. To sign up to be a soldier was to die to being a civilian, and to remain a civilian was to die to the opportunity to be a soldier and fight on the front lines of freedom. There was no middle ground. You're either in or you're out. You either had the uniform on or you took the uniform off. There was no third option. Following Christ is much the same way, only it's much more serious. The situation we're facing as a race of people, as human beings, is far more dire than this world was facing in the 1940s. The enemy that we're up against is so much more fierce and evil than Hitler as to make him look like nothing more than a field mouse. The call to follow Jesus and to come out of the world is absolute in an absolute sense. We either clothe ourselves with Christ or we reject Christ, and there is no middle ground, beloved. To be a Christian is to refuse citizenry in this world, and to insist that we have to be a citizen of this world is to reject Christ and to face the consequences of that decision. There is no third option here. Now, as Kevin rightly said last week, this call, even though it's a hard call and an absolute call, it's a good call because of who Jesus is. Jesus is, in fact, the creator of all things. He is, in fact, the Lord of all life. He is, in fact, the Lord of all things good. He is, in fact, the eternal fountain of all joy. And to know him is to enter into a depth of joy that he has experienced with his Father and with the Holy Spirit forever. Meditate sometime carefully on John chapter 17, and you will see that to be a believer is to enter into the very joy of the Trinity. And so Jesus is essentially inviting us to a feast, but in order to enjoy the feast, we must die to all lesser pleasures in this world. It's an absolute call. 
It's one way or the other. Come in or stay out. There's no middle option. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see that the call to be totally devoted to Jesus is founded upon his total devotion to his Father. Christ did what he did for our sake, and the Father raised him from the dead for our sake. That's true. But mainly, Jesus did what he did in obedience to his Father, and the Father raised him for the de- from the dead for the glory of his name. Christ came to set the captives free because the Father sent him to set the captives free and Jesus is an obedient son. He lives in glad-hearted submission to his Father. His greatest joy is to do the will of his Father and beloved. In his glad-hearted obedience is all the resource we need to obey his call to total devotion. And we're going to begin seeing that this week as Jesus now marches toward the cross. And so even as we receive this call as a sort of heavy call, as an absolute call, as a call about which we must make a decision, are you in or are you out, I hope we know that with the call comes all the grace we need to obey that call. With the demand comes mercy. Three times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus warned his disciples that he had to suffer at the hands of Israel's leaders. This was not optional. This was written in the scripture. It had to happen. Second thing that had to happen is he had to be killed. It was not enough for Jesus merely to die as any of us will die. Jesus had to be killed. And then on the third day, Jesus said he would be raised again from the dead. You can see these on your own two times in Luke chapter nine, one time in Luke chapter 18. Jesus' disciples were confused about what he was saying. They didn't understand at all. But Jesus knew his purpose in life. And so if you look at chapter 19, verse 28, you'll see that Luke simply says he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. And by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem because it was up on top of a hill. So no matter what direction you come from, you go up to Jerusalem. And beloved, what I want us to understand is that this was no random journey but that this was a march toward Jesus' destiny. He knew exactly why he was going to Jerusalem. The main entrance into the city in those days was on the eastern side where the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives played host to two very important villages named Bethpage and Bethany. These villages were not just random villages, but they were very important power centers in that day. In fact, the village called Bethpage was a city that was built by the priests and for the priests. So you had all these priests who ministered in Jerusalem. They actually built a city just outside Jerusalem where they could all live. And it was basically a a city made up completely of priests. And over time, they put the seat of Jerusalem there or the court of Jerusalem there so that you had sort of one wing of the supreme court, if you will, in Jerusalem itself at the temple. And you had another wing of of the supreme court of Jerusalem in Bethpage, in this city where all of the leaders lived. And from there, they did their work. From there, they made many decisions. So this was not just another village This was a very, very important power center. The name Bethpage literally means the house of unripe figs. And especially if you're a note taker, please write that down and remember that because we're going to come back to that in weeks ahead. Bethpage means the city of unripe figs or the house of unripe figs. And this name was chosen very intentionally. Intentionally. 
unlike us, the Jewish people believed that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were tempted by a fig, not an apple. And if you will take that to heart and think about all the stories in the Bible about figs, a lot of things will start clicking for you. A lot of things will start making sense. I am persuaded that they were right and we're wrong. There was not an apple for years, I've said. It was probably a watermelon because I would be more, much more tempted by a watermelon than an apple. But I think the evidence shows that it was much more likely that Adam and Eve were tempted by a fig and they ate a fig. And so when the priests built this city called the House of Unripe Figs, the reason they named it that was because they were trying to say that in this place where the rulers rule, There is no means of temptation that will draw us away from God and muddy our judgments, muddy our wisdom, muddy our decisions. They had a kind of Catholic doctrine where they taught that under certain conditions, their judgments were infallible there. So believe me, the name of the city, Bethpage, is not an accident. By the way, a little bit of a note, historical note. If you go over to that area today, you won't find the city of Bethpage. It's not there. In fact, a hundred years after this story took place, the city wasn't there because that city, along with the temple in Jerusalem, was completely destroyed. And I, I just find that very interesting, that along with the temple itself, God actually also saw fit that the city of priests was destroyed after the time of Christ. That city's been rebuilt and renamed something else, but we know from history what it originally was and what it was originally about. Now, when we think about Jesus, I really want us to understand that, that for him to march into Jerusalem by way of Bethpage shows us that he was not trying to avoid the traps of powerful people who were literally plotting to take his life. He knew, he already knew before he went to Jerusalem that the people who lived in that city wanted to kill him. But instead of going roundabout in a back way, he went right into the heart of the lion's den and he trusted himself into the hands of his father. He resolved to do the will of his father no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences. Jesus was a perfectly obedient son, no matter what it meant for his personal comfort. Before they actually entered into that village, Jesus sent two of his disciples there to fetch a donkey on which no one had ridden and on which he could ride into Jerusalem. And so his disciples obeyed him. They found everything just as Jesus said it would be. They fetched the donkey. They brought it to him. They put coats on it for his comfort. They set him up on top of it, and they began the march down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says this. It says, Rejoice, Greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Beloved, those words were spoken centuries before Jesus rode that donkey into that city. In setting out from Bethpage to Jerusalem, Jesus was setting out from one of the major power centers of the country into the most important city of that country. Even the elite of, even though the elite of Israel were trying to, to kill him in those days, Jesus' father blessed him and sent him into Jerusalem where most of these people lived and worked and exercised their power. I find that incredibly insightful, incredibly amazing. 
It was as if the Father was saying to them, I am the true power source of Bethpage and Bethany and Jerusalem. I am the one who makes final decisions about all things, and I have decided to put my blessings upon this one, and nobody would change my mind. You have put a wing of the Supreme Court here in this city, and from your power center, I send my son. And here's what I say. He is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Follow him. Worship him. Luke tells us in verse 37, if you'll look there, that as Jesus descended the Mount of Olives and drew near to Jerusalem, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So over the last several weeks, we've been meditating together on one story after another, and we have seen Jesus proclaim the gospel of freedom. We've seen him demonstrate the power of the gospel by healing people and casting out demons, and we have seen him in this way bring much glory to his Father, gospel power and glory. We've seen the pow- this pattern over and over again, and we'll continue to see this pattern all the way through the book of Acts. But beloved, for the people that were there, they didn't need to read these things. They were there to visibly witness these things. They saw Jesus demonstrate the power of God. They heard Jesus preach the gospel, and they thought that he was the Messiah sent from God who would sit on the throne of David and rule. And in some ways, they were exactly right. It's just that they got the details wrong. And so we're not surprised to see that they were following after him and singing in a loud voice and saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Now the reason I say that they were singing these words is because they come directly from Psalm 118 verse 26. And you have to remember that for them, these were worship songs. For you and I, we read the Psalms, right? In fact, I'm going through a Bible reading plan this year and next year as well where I read one psalm every single day. We read the psalms. We study the psalms. We think about the psalms. But they sang the psalms. They did this day in and day out, week in and week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. And most of them would have had the psalms memorized just like we memorize so many songs that we know. And so as they're following Jesus along the road, I imagine not just that they were saying, but that they were singing the words of Psalm 118, verse 26, like a chorus, if you will, singing it over and over again. Now, while they were praising their master, some of the Pharisees spoke up and asked Jesus to rebuke these disciples. They didn't think that it was right for people to praise a man like this, especially if it wasn't one of them. And so Jesus said to them, listen up. If these people remain silent, the very rocks will cry out. There's so much in what Jesus is saying there. If you know the Bible at all, if you read the Bible at all, you'll know that all of the purposes and plans that God had purposed before the foundation of the world were about to come to fruition in Christ. The how long, O Lord, of the believing heart had now given way to the actual presence of Jesus. So many things were starting to click. The fullness of time had come. The fullness of so many prophecies had come. And creation itself was worshiping God. Jesus had eyes to see it. Jesus had ears to hear it. And the people could not help but join in. Christ was rejoicing in the purposes of his Father, not just the praises of the people. I hope you see that. 
And that's why he said, it doesn't matter if they're praising me or not. They could all stop praising me. The creation will praise me. This isn't about their praise of me. This is about the purposes of my Father. I, I just can feel the deepness of the joy that was in the heart of our Master. And so, what it must have been like for him as he approached Jerusalem and his eyes landed upon the city, that depth of joy turned into tears because it says then that when Jesus saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. Now in the Greek language, there's a word that means cry where maybe a tear or two or three or 10 is coming out of your eyes. But then there's another word that means weep in the sense that we mean it. It means to cry hard, to cry passionately. And This is what Jesus was doing. He wasn't just sort of dropping a tear or two out of the side. He began to weep for this city right in front of his disciples. And he said out loud, O Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known the things on this day that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another with you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Beloved, there comes a time where the mercy of God gives way to the wrath of God and devastation is decreed upon people. But I pray that we will erase from our minds any notion that God enjoys the destruction of his people even when they have brought that destruction upon themselves. Beloved, Jesus wept over that city even as he pronounced devastation upon that city. He wept because he knew the suffering they were about to inflict on him, the Lord of glory. He wept because he knew the suffering that they would have to endure when their city was destroyed in only about 30 to 40 years ahead. He wept because he knew that they had brought this destruction, this suffering upon themselves and that it was completely unnecessary. He knew with great depth the grace that God had extended to these people for so many centuries. He wept because he himself had bid the people of Jerusalem to come under his wings so many times, but they would not. He gave them the same choice. Follow me, give everything to me, and I will give everything to you, or reject me and pay the price, and they chose to reject him, and so he wept. He wept because the weight of the sin of Jerusalem, and indeed the weight of the sin of the world, was beginning to land upon his shoulders. I'll never forget the day that I heard Floyd McClung preach at Bethlehem Baptist Church. It was the spring, I think, of 1990, maybe the summer of 1990. Floyd was the leader of Youth with a Mission in those days, and he was a very large and imposing man. I had only been in Christ about three years, and I had come out of this tradition of churches where there was a lot of sort of hellfire and brimstone preaching, and I expected Floyd to get up into that pulpit and really give it to us. It's just, for whatever reason, that's what I was expecting. But instead, what I saw in this very large man was a gentle spirit, and he began to talk about his ministry in Amsterdam, where he had been for many years. He talked about walking around that sick city. And he talked about weeping and weeping and weeping for his city. And then he said something that I've never forgotten. 
He said that he had come to the place in his life where he just had no room anymore for prophets without tears. He had no room for people who would come into a city and speak condemnation and yet not weep over that city. He doubted that people without tears were from God. And I think he's right about that. Never forget, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. When he decrees destruction, it breaks his heart. When the Lord entered into the city, he went directly into the temple complex because his desire, just like when he was a kid, his desire was to be in his father's house and his aim was to confront the heart of the corruption of that city. And so while it's a bit surprising for us to see Jesus act like this, You will see there that he physically and even violently drove from the temple complex those who were selling things and making a profit. He was consumed with zeal for his father's house and he could not stand idly by while the power brokers of Israel took advantage of God's people. You see, God had commanded the people of Israel to come to Jerusalem multiple times a year to observe this feast or that feast, not the least of which was the Passover. When the people arrived in Jerusalem, they had certain things that they needed so that they could obey the commands of God. And so the leaders of Israel set up a sort of market in the temple where people could acquire the things that they needed to do the will of God. And I don't think that that system itself was the problem. In fact, if the system was run in the right way, it could have been a tremendous blessing. I'm thinking right now of ministries like that of Keith Green, who's, who's passed on some years ago, or right now, Pastor John Piper, whose ministries basically ran on this pay us whatever you can afford kind of policy. There can be a great blessing to the people of God when we resource them with a right heart, but somewhere along the way, some genius got the idea that they had the people of Israel over a barrel and they could actually gouge them. So let's say that somebody comes to the temple and they need a lamb to make a sacrifice. Let's say that a lamb costs about 300 bucks. I Googled it yesterday, and that's what I found. You can get a lamb for about 300 bucks. Well, they would mark it up to 400 bucks or 500 bucks. They were taking advantage of the religious sentiments of the people and the religious requirements of God. They were trampling on the word of God so that they could become rich. This is why Jesus was enraged. This is why he shouted the words of Isaiah 56, 7 in the temple. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. We are not used to seeing Jesus be so physically demanding that he's able to drive grown men out of a temple, but that's what he did. John tells us that he actually put together a cat of nine tails, which was a pretty nasty weapon, and believe me, he physically, even violently, drove those people out of that temple. But beloved, he wasn't just going off on the people. He was not out of control of himself. He was filled with zeal for his Father's glory. He was filled with zeal for the holiness of his Father's house. He was filled with zeal for justice toward the poor. And he could not just sit around and watch these leaders take advantage of God's people in God's name. He wouldn't do it. And so our Lord cleansed his own temple. And having done that, Luke tells us that he taught there daily. I think that's really important. It's like he clears the stage 
And then he begins to proclaim the truth. He couldn't have done one without the other. He had to fight for holiness in order to proclaim truth. And that's exactly what he did. And the people loved him. Luke tells us that they hung on his every word. Oh, what joy there would be in hearing Jesus teach particularly. As much joy as I get out of preaching, I would love to just sit instead and listen to Jesus teach. This was their joy, and they hung on his every words, but the religious leaders didn't feel the same. They were jealous of him. They wanted to get rid of him in some way, shape, or form, but they, they were afraid of him because he held so much sway over the hearts of the people that they were afraid that if they came against Jesus, the people would turn against them, and so they wondered what they should do. They came up with this brilliant plot to trap him in his words. They came up with the idea that maybe we can get him to say some things that we can actually use in a court of law against him. So just understand that the dialogue that follows in the next chapters, these, these arguments between Jesus and the leaders of his day, they're not just random arguments. They're trying to trap Christ so that they can take him to court. That's their motives. So in chapter 20, verse one, Luke writes this. He says, one day... As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So I think they're questioning his credentials. I think what they're trying to do is to undermine the basis of his ministry so that they could destroy his ministry. If they could discredit him, they could destroy him without a fight. But then as a bonus, perhaps, perhaps they could get him to say something blasphemous about God so that they could haul him into court and imprison him, beat him, perhaps even kill him. Their motives weren't good, and Jesus saw right through their schemes. He is an absolute heart reader. We find in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, that all of us stand completely naked before the God of the Word and before the Word of God because he discerns even the deep intentions of our hearts that we ourselves do not see. And so in their question, Jesus saw their heart, and he answered. I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He's talking, of course, about John the Baptist. I find it interesting that they didn't sit there and discuss this with Jesus openly, but they actually walked away and had a deliberation. If they were sincere men of God, they would not have needed to do that. They could have just entered into a discussion, sought the truth, and hopefully discerned the will of God, but they were not interested in that. They were interested in trapping Jesus. So they walk away and they begin to discuss and they say, hmm, what are we going to do? If we say that John was sent from God, he's going to say to us, well, why didn't you obey him then? Why didn't you listen? So we can't say that. That'll discredit us in front of all these people who are giving us their money. Can't do that. But if we say that John was not from God, these people are going to kill us because they believe that he was from God. So what are we going to do? And some genius comes up with the idea that, hey, let's just tell them we don't know. Brilliant answer. (laughs) So they go back to the Lord and they just say, we don't know. And again, I think if that was a sincere answer, sometimes we just don't know, right? I think if it was a sincere answer, Jesus would have answered differently. But it was not sincere. 
It was their way of snaking out of a tricky problem that Jesus had deliberately put them into. He is a master, a master, and he knew, he knew the conundrum that that question would put them in, and so they just said, I don't know. And he said, well, then listen, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do the things that I do. And I imagine him just in calm confidence, just staring them right in the eyes. He knew that his authority came 100% from God. He knew that. And I think that by looking in his eyes, they could sense it, they could feel it, and they knew it. Jesus was creating a ripe moment here. He was creating a tense moment. And when the tension was just right, he turned from the leaders toward the people, and he tells them a parable that he knows that the leaders are going to hear. And here's the parable. Look at chapter 20, starting in verse 9. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that that, that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third This one also they wounded, and they cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. I can just hear the earnestness, the seriousness in Jesus' voice. He's telling a parable, and he's also prophesying the future, right? He's telling a story that wasn't exactly true, but he's using this made-up story to point to something that's absolutely true and that's absolutely going to happen. I can just feel the earnestness in his soul. And certainly the leaders of Israel did too because they looked at him and they exclaimed with great outrage, surely not. There is no way that the things you just said will happen are going to happen. There's no way that the state of affairs you have just drawn out are actually as you've said they are. No way. Jesus says in verse 17, and I love the way Luke writes this, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written in Psalm 118, verse 22, by the way? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Christ was telling them, and they knew it, that he was the fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 22, a very famous psalm in Jewish culture. The leaders of Israel were clear that this psalm was pointing toward the Messiah and Jesus was saying, I am the cornerstone and you have to deal with me. Unfortunately, his loving rebuke did nothing to humble these guys and so they continued to try to trap him in his words. If you look at chapter 20, verse 20, you'll see that they even sent spies now 
to try to overhear something that Jesus would say. They sent spies to ask questions from out of the crowd as though it was an authentic and spontaneous question from out of the crowd, but it was a plant intended to trap him and get him into court. And what do you do? If you really want to get somebody in trouble, what do you do? You get them to say something controversial about taxes, right? Did you know that Martin Luther first nailed 97 theses to the door in Wittenberg and nobody said anything and nothing happened? And Martin Luther was bummed out because he thought that his 97 theses were going to shake the world. And he was depressed. He went back to the drawing board. He's praying, he's thinking, he's praying, he's thinking, and then the aha moment comes. Attack the indulgences. Attack the coffers of the Roman Catholic Church, which were being used to gouge the people. And he did that, and the world turned upside down. So understand that these leaders are trying to get Jesus to say something controversial about the Roman treasury so that they'll kill him. That's what they're up to. And he answers in such a masterful way. He's like, check it out. Whose image is on the money? Caesar. Great. Give that to Caesar. Give to God what is God's. Do you hear what he's saying? You bear the image of God. Stop being murderous hypocrites. Give yourselves to God. Oh, what a master debater he is. A master. Nobody can trap this one. The Sadducees, seeing that the trap didn't work, now asked him a theological question. These guys, there were several wings of leaders in those days. This particular wing of leaders did not believe that people would be raised from the dead in the final judgment. The Pharisees and the scribes and other people did believe that people would be raised in the dead at the final judgment, and we'll talk maybe some other time about why that was. But the point is that now the Sadducees come forward and they try to get him to comment on something theological so that basically he'll tick off everybody involved. They weren't interested in his opinion. They were trying to get him to say something controversial so that they could get more and more people against him. They're trying to gather troops against Christ and they come up with this crazy concocted story that Jesus just very quickly sees through and answers and silences his questioners. Silences them. In fact, you'll see at the end of that particular story that it says they did not dare to ask him any more questions. They figured out they weren't going to outwit Jesus Christ. It's perfectly holy, perfectly devoted from his, to his Father, perfectly unable to be tempted, perfectly unable to be tricked, perfectly unable to be trapped, and they knew it. So now Jesus knew he had them somewhere, and he decided to ask them a question. If you look there at chapter 20, verse 41, 20, verse 41, you'll see that Jesus asks this, Simple and devastating question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? So the broad teaching in Jesus' day was that when the Messiah, when the great deliverer of Israel would come, that he would not be the beloved son of God, but that he would be the son of David. He would come from the lineage of David and he would sit on the throne of his father David forever. But Jesus questioned this teaching on the basis of what David himself wrote in Psalm 110, verse 1, which you may remember is the most quoted psalm, or actually the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Jesus loved this psalm, and his followers loved this psalm because it's all about him. So he quotes the first verse, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I need to help you hear this in Hebrew. 
Because Lord and Lord sound the same in English, but they're not the same in Hebrew. So what this says, what David wrote with his own pen was, Lord, Yahweh, this is the God of Israel, this is the God of all creation. Yahweh said to my Lord, my Adonai, Adonai is just a name that means Lord or Master. So Yahweh, the great God of all gods, said to my Adonai, David's Lord, David's Master, God said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so with that knowledge, Jesus asked them, how can David call him Lord if this guy is David's son? What sense does that make? This stunned them into silence. They answered not a single word. They didn't say a thing because Jesus had just checkmated them. You see, this is how I see this whole thing playing out. When he told them that parable of the tenants, he identified them as the wicked tenants, right? They're the ones that were given stewardship over God's house. I think that the servants that the, that the owner sent were the prophets of Israel. He sent one after another after another. They beat some, they killed some, they drove them out. Finally, the father sends his beloved son, and the, and the leaders of Israel know Jesus is saying, I am that beloved son, I'm the one. They knew what he was saying. Now by going to Psalm 110, he's giving theological ground for it. He's saying that when the Messiah comes, he will not simply be the son of David, he will be the very son of God, and I am that one. He is making a stunning claim that they understood and that essentially signed his death warrant, as we'll see in the next few weeks. After this, Jesus does what to me is just an amazing thing. Okay, so he's, now he stops engaging with the leaders again. He turns toward his disciples, and he says out loud in the hearing of the leaders, in the hearing of all the people, he says this to his disciples. Please look at chapter 20, verse 46. He says, beware of the scribes, and by implication, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and elders, who love, who like to walk around in long robes. Now God had commanded some of them to wear robes, so it's not the wearing of the robes, it's that they liked it. They loved the position, they loved the prestige, they loved the power, they loved the attention. And they love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogues. They love it when they get to parade in front of people. They love the places of honor at the feasts. And you know what else they do? They devour Widows' houses. They take advantage of weak people. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They're showing off in the name of God. They will receive the greater condemnation. I hope you can understand that by confronting these power brokers in this way, not just in public, but right in the heart of the temple, Jesus Christ signed his death warrant. I hope you can see how courageous a man he is. Jesus did not fear those who could kill the body and then do nothing more. He did not fear them. Jesus walked in the fear of his Father. And when the powers that he himself had sent up, set up, needed, needed to be rebuked, he rebuked them no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence. They had taken the stewardship that he had given to them And they were desecrating it for their own sake rather than stewarding it for the sake of the glory of God. And Jesus, in love and in love of justice and righteousness, had to confront them. That's what's going on. He has gone 
into the heart of corruption and he has sought to clear the temple complex and he sought to clear the temple of the human heart as well. Now as for these leaders, they were left to deal with who Jesus is and there was really not a third option. They tried to trap him in a number of ways and when you carefully think about how Jesus responded to them one thing after another, what you come to see is that he responded by revealing his identity He did not simply answer their theological questions. He did do that because he's a God who cares about truth. Getting truth right matters to Jesus. But what matters even more is that he reveals his glory along the way. And essentially, that's what he did. In the parable of the tenants, he said, listen, I'll answer your question. I'm the beloved son of God. I am the chosen one. I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. At the end of the parable of the tenants, he said, I am the stone that the builders, namely some of you leaders, I am the stone that some of you are rejecting, but I have been made the cornerstone by God. I am the centerpiece, the foundation of all the purposes and plans of God. That's me. That's who I am. That's the answer to your questions. And then he said from Psalm 110, I am the great king of kings and the great high priest who will be installed by God forever and ever. I will rule and reign forever. I will intercede and make sacrifice for sin forever and ever. I am that great one. This is who I am. And Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, you must deal with me. There is no third option. And you have two choices. One, you can fall upon me and break to pieces. The the fake life you have been living will fall apart. And in my grace, I will receive you. I will rebuild you. I will transform you. I will call you by name. You will be my people. I will be your God. That's choice number one. Choice number two, Harden your heart against me, reject me, hold me at a distance, even try to kill me. And the time will come when I will fall upon you and I will crush you beyond repair. Repent and live, refuse to repent and you will die. Beloved, they had to make a choice. There was no third option. No third option. This did not just relate to the leaders, it related also to the people. And all the way down to our day, 2,000 years later, it relates to us as well. We are in the same situation. The Jesus who said the things he said in those days is still living in this day, and he's right here, right now, in this place, speaking to us through his word and by his spirit. And he is calling us to make much the same decision. He still is the eternal cornerstone that is the foundation of all the purposes and plans of God. And beloved, we must deal with him. We either fall upon him and break so that he can rebuild us, or we refuse him, we reject him, and then when we face him, he will fall upon us, and there will be no hope of salvation. There is not a third way. So, if you're here this morning and you do not believe in Jesus, I want to tell you I've been praying for days and days about this, and I just have a sense, which I probably would have any Sunday, but I just, I just feel this in my heart, that God has deliberately drawn you here to confront you with this choice because he loves you. You know, as harsh as Jesus was with these leaders, he confronted them because he loved them. 
The Bible says he only disciplines those he loves. He only rebukes those he receives as children. If you have the privilege of being rebuked by Jesus, it's because you're loved by Jesus. He is trying to woo you to himself. But believe me, his rebuke is serious. It matters. It really matters. I remember when I was a kid and getting into a lot of trouble, one of my best friends, Robert Chapman was his name, and now, by the grace of God, he's actually a Christian. He's walking with Jesus. But I remember standing in the court and hearing the judge say to him, listen, son, you got two choices. You go up to Alaska and spend time with your family and try to get your life together, or you can go to jail for a year. You got two choices. There's not a third option. Which will you choose? And believe me, Robert was not going to get out of that. He had to choose one or the other. The same thing is, is true of Jesus. He is the judge of the universe. And he says, either accept my grace or receive my wrath. There's not a third option. And so I want to plead with you to consider Jesus carefully. I want to plead with you to bow your knee and receive Jesus. He may confront you, but it's in order to give you life. I remember in October of 1986 when he whapped me upside the head. The first day I met Jesus, I was scared of him because he was confronting me. But he confronted me that I might live. And beloved, you're here today because he wants you to live. So if you need time to think about this Christ and think about what you will do with regard to him, then take the time you need. But please don't be lax about that because you might not be alive tomorrow or the next day or the next week. And the Bible says that we are all appointed once to die and then we face the judgment. And I want you with all my heart, I want you to be ready to face that judgment with joy. So please fall upon Jesus. Let him break you to pieces because he will rebuild you in his grace. He will do it. So many people in this room are living evidence of that fact, and he will do it for you as well. For those of us who are already believers, um, I think that the message is, maybe, maybe our motives toward Christ are a little bit different, but I think the message is much the same. We're still left with this choice to fall upon Jesus or to let him fall upon us. The call to follow Christ is an all or nothing proposition. It's all in or all out. It's give me everything or I will take everything from you. And even though we know how patient he is, we know how kind he is, we know how, how much he endures with us day by day, month by month, year by year. Although we know the truth that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Although we know these things, we need to continue to hear the call that whoever will come after me must give up everything or they cannot be my disciple. And so, beloved, we have to face this same Jesus. We have to make this same choice. As I said earlier in the message, I fear that we just become too comfortable with Jesus. And we need to let him confront us right now. So many things could be said about this, but what I want to focus our time, our time on is talking about time, talking about how we spend our time. I think that the main part of following Christ has to, come with giving, has to do with giving our time to Christ. So how are you doing with that? How are you doing with managing your time with regard to Christ? Are you making time for Jesus, or are you allowing other things to crowd him out of your life? Is he becoming sort of a side dish rather than the main dish? Are you giving him the sort of filet mignon portion of your day, or do you give him the leftovers when you happen to have leftovers? 
Are you putting yourself in a place day by day where you're opening up his word and listening to his spirit and allowing him to reveal himself to you and speak to you and guide you and guard you and lead you along the way? Or are your ears and your, your eyes, your heart, your mind just filled with messages from the world, from other sources? How are you doing with regard to your time in Jesus Christ? In recent days, I have struggled with this more than usual, but God is helping me with this. But normally, I have a, a saying that guides how I spend my mornings, and the saying is simply this. Very simple, but helpful to me. God before gadgets. God before gadgets. I don't know about you, but one of the main distractors for me is my smartphone and all the email that's on there and all the notifications that are on there and even all the good things that are on there. My Bible reading plan is on there, so I gotta open my phone because my Bible reading plan is on my phone, right? But for my heart, when I open up that phone and I see all my emails, I see all my task lists, I see my this and my that, My heart is divided and I can't focus on Christ. And so my rule is God before gadgets. Open the Bible before you open your phone. Open the Bible before you turn on the computer. Allow Jesus Christ to capture your heart. Allow him to speak to you. Allow him to rebuke you. Allow him to guide you. Allow allow him to give you wisdom. Allow him to be your Lord. Oh, how those words have been ringing in my mind this week. Why do you call me Lord and do nothing that I say? So, beloved, I don't know. I'm a morning person, like major morning person. Maybe you're not. I'm not asking you to give God time in the morning. I'm saying, do you give him the premium time or do you give him the leftover time when you're only half there? Are you giving God your attention? Are you allowing him to capture your heart? Believe me, this call to total devotion to Jesus has everything to do with how you spend your time with regard to Jesus. So I just felt compelled this morning to lead us to think about that, to pray about that, to put that before the Lord and say, Lord, do you have the space in my life that you want in my life or do we need to make adjustments? And I just want to encourage you, it's worth losing anything and everything in order to enthrone Jesus as the king of your calendar, the king of your time. We must make a choice. We either fall upon Christ day by day and are broken up so that he can rebuild us or eventually he will fall upon us and crush us. And this is true even of believers. 1 Corinthians 13 or 3.13, uh, Hebrews 12, other passages tell us plainly that God disciplines his own children. I told you two weeks ago about a pastor who was just caught in sexual sin and had to announce that to the church. Well, believe me, day by day by day, that man, you know, whatever the affair was, didn't just happen overnight. There was a long process that led to this devastating affair. And what happened was day by day by day, he refused to fall upon Christ. He refused to bring his lustful thoughts to Christ. He refused to bring his unaccountable life before Christ and be broken so that Christ would rebuild him. And eventually Jesus said, that's enough. And Christ fell upon him and devastated his ministry. He's done. I have heard follow-up things about this guy, and I'm convinced he really knows Jesus. I'm convinced of that. But as for the ministry, he's out. Beloved, this call is serious, and it's upon us. Will we fall upon Christ, or will we make Christ eventually have to fall upon us? I pray that we will hear the mercy, the tenderness, the joy of his call, and that we will learn to give our time, give our heart, give our lives 
to him. Let's pray now that he will help us and then we will sing. Lord, I feel so desperately inadequate to preach this message and to make things clear, but I trust that by your spirit you have done that. And I pray as I did in the beginning that anything that I said that was of me, I pray that it would fall away and be forgotten. But I pray that to the extent that I was faithful to your word, that you would cause your word to pierce our hearts that we might know you in a deeper way. Father, I pray for those who don't know you at all. I pray that they would bow the knee to you today, Jesus. I pray that you would open their eyes and open their hearts to the glory, to the joy of who you are. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we would allow you to capture us and that we would walk away from other things that are getting our attention right now. I thank you, Jesus, for what you will do because you promised that when your word goes out, you always use it for the glory of your name and the upbuilding of your church. And so we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name, amen.